Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand now for the reading of God's Word. We're going to turn to Luke chapter 5, and we'll pick up at verse 1 of Luke chapter 5. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them, and they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken, and so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon, And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray as we think upon this history. Father, that you would illumine our hearts and our minds, that we would uh, learn from your word. Father, that we would not be uh, those that we read of in John 12 who heard your word and rejected it and then were judged by that same word. Father, I pray that we would be hearers and doers of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So these first disciples of the Lord were fishermen. Uh, Most of the apostles were working-class men. Uh, Many of them were fishermen. Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, and John were partners with Peter in this business. These were the sons of Zebedee. But it also could have been uh, Jude, who is called Thaddeus, and Philip, Simon the Zealot, Thomas. All of them could have been fishermen. So that would be almost a majority of the men that were called as disciples were uh, knew, knew the sea uh, as their vocation. Here recorded for us is a typical day in the life of a, of a fisherman. Right? The fish do not bite every day. Right? It seems like many days they don't bite at all. But there's always the hope that it'll be a day when the fish are biting. Peter, James, and John had returned to the shore of the Lake of, Gal, um, Lake of Galilee without any fish. So they're, they're washing their nets, 
removing the stones and all of the debris that would have been collected in the nets as they, they uh, fished and then mending any of the breaks that would have happened as they pulled their nets across rocks and stones. No doubt they would still, uh, th- though there was no catch, they would be more exhausted than, the, than if they had the work of dealing with a catch. Right, We know how that works. But they're exhausted from the work because that, that unproductive fishing is, is more um, exhausting than pulling up a large haul of fish. And while they're doing this work of washing the nets, crowds are gathering along the shore in order to hear Jesus speak the word of God, as it says in verse 1. Listening to the word of God. And Jesus... Uh, seeing two boats, gets into one of them. It's Peter's boat, and he, he begins teaching the crowds from a sacred or a seated position, not a sacred position, it's just seated. <laughs> um, a seated position in the boat. He uses the boat, in a sense, as his pulpit. Acoustically, it helps, and visually, it helps to be on the shore and have ground behind you and then be out on the lake. All of us have had the experience of of just talking on one side of a lake, and unfortunately the people on the other side of the lake can hear what you're saying about them, right? The sound has nothing to break it, and so it carries. And so this, um, this position helped with the view and with the acoustics. Now, that in, in the previous passage, um, it, in chapter 4, contains a recounting of a time when Jesus was in Simon Peter's home, yet our passage in chapter 5, along with the parallel passages in Matthew and Mark, seem to be depicting the first, this as the first meeting between Peter and Jesus. Right? If you look back at chapter 1, verse 3, we read this about Luke's method. He investigated and wrote out for Theophilus what happened in consecutive order is what uh, my translation says. If you're reading the ESV, it, it says an orderly account. In the King James, it says in order. Um, basically, this is understood to mean that this is not strictly chronological, as we would expect if a modern person said that. Um, it means more that he's grouping things in some sort of order. This is an orderly account, that, so that it'll make sense as a whole. So at times we'll see things slightly out of chronological order when we compare them with the other gospels, but there is a reason Luke worked that way. Right? Luke has less regard to chronological order than Matthew or Mark and and rather classifies the events than narrates them in a series. And so it's it's a method of composing history that would have been common for his time. So it seems we're going back to gather up the calling of the apostles and the disciples, which we see throughout chapter 5. So back to the scene. Jesus finishes preaching and teaching the word of God to the people and begins speaking directly to um, to the apostle Peter. And he gives Peter this command. Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Oh, you know, you can imagine him being a bit exasperated. Um, Don't forget that Jesus had prepared Peter for this command. The whole previous day and night, he was preparing Peter. 
right? That whole previous day and night when Peter had not been allowed by God's providence to catch, catch a single fish was preparation for this moment when he would go out and have a different experience. That was as much the doing of God as was the coming haul of fish, right? That, that, that night of no fish, was we should be uh, astounded by the providence of God as much by that as, as perhaps this extraordinary haul of fish. The drought always precedes the rain, and it gives the rain significance, right? The wandering precedes the arrival. The hunger pangs precede the day of feasting. And so God's no always precedes God's yes. And here we see it in this passage. Accepting that no is a, is a deep mark of faith, right? Accepting God's no is a deep mark of faith. And, and uh, a prosperity preacher wouldn't agree with me, right? The prosperity pe- preacher would say no. You don't accept no's. You don't accept nothings. You have to um, you have to shoot for the yes and the blessing. So understanding that times of drought and of wandering and of hunger of no catch are preparing us for something different. In some sense, the whole life of the Christian is this way. Scripture refers to believers as strangers and aliens in the world. They're strangers and aliens in the world, waiting for that which comes. Um, Next, we're waiting for the being welcomed into the city where we have our citizenship. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we we await our arrival there. We our our home city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Right, and so, but now now it's we're strangers and aliens. We have um, no rest, and yet for the time being, there. You know, there, there will be times when there are supposed to be nights where we don't catch any fish. There will be nights of suffering. There will be nights of, of uh, throwing up and dry heaving, right? There will be nights of, uh, where we, which will be nights of loss, getting uh, called in the middle of the night and hearing about the death of a loved one. Um, saying goodbye to loved ones. There'll be nights of the loss of jobs and of, prep, of property and of reputation. All those things will happen. There'll be days and nights of confusion and loneliness and depression, followed by days of great hauls of fish. Right? Then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust, my great army which I sent among you. That's from Joel, right? God had sent an army among them, and not a typical army, but an army to destroy them. And yet God promises that he would make up for those years of loss. And so during the long night of no catch, it may be your tendency, as it is mine, to begin to doubt, to doubt the, good, the good word of God, the promises of good things to come. You may know them intellectually, but they don't sink down into your heart. Um, and, and think of the promises of God that you begin to doubt, that he says he will never leave you or forsake you, and you're like, yeah, yeah. Seems like he's left me. Seems like I'm awfully alone. Seems like everything I put my hand to falls apart. Seek first his kingdom and all these things will be added to you. 
and you think, well, um, let's see at least a little blessing come when I seek obedience to the Lord. Because when I obey the Lord, it seems that all I do is make enemies, right? That sort of attitude, it's common. Though it's common, it's sin, that sort of attitude when we, um, when we dismiss the promises of God in order to interpret all of Scripture and all those promises through our immediate circumstances, right? It's sin because it, first of all, doubts that God is present in our suffering in, the, in those no-catch-of-fish days. Second, it doubts the power of God to make the next day a day of great, of, of great fishing, Right? It makes us doubt that there's going to be a day coming where we actually catch. And third, it doubts the goodness of God that he's a father who delights in simply giving good gifts to his children. Some of us conceive of God as something other than a father. We conceive of God as maybe a a garden, a prison, that brings us food and water every once in a while, you know, gives us some relief, but basically encloses us in and doesn't give us freedom. And that's wrong. That's wrong. God is a father who delights in giving his, his gifts to his children. But to re- return to the first reason, have you heard people say that was a God thing? That was a God thing. You've heard people say that, right? Yeah. I've heard people say that. People only use that phrase when they have had one of their prayers answered precisely as they had prayed or generally when something good happens, right? That was a God thing. And so we say it as, as, a, as a response to something positive. The night when Peter and James and John caught no fish, that was a God thing. That was a God thing, wasn't it? But they didn't come to shore and say, man... That was a God thing. You know, we worked all night. We didn't get any fish. We're not going to have a, we're not going to be able to trade our fish for anything. The family's going to be hungry. That was a God thing. Um, The day you lost your job, that was a God thing. The day you lost your friend because you called out his sin, that was a God thing. The day you were diagnosed with with um, diabetes, that was a God thing, right? The day your house burnt to the ground, that was a God thing. And that day was preparing you for the day of feasting, right? The day of no losses, the day of joy. All those things were preparing you for that. And Peter got this because look what he wrote in his letter many years later. In 1 Peter 4, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. So keep rejoicing so that you can really rejoice when he appears. Now, how does Peter respond to the command from Jesus? He responds with immediate faith, right? He does, he does mention the previous night, right? And the fact that they didn't catch anything, but he doesn't plead out of Jesus' command. He doesn't say like, man, the fish are not biting tonight, and I am just not going to go back out there. We're tired. We're tired. 
He doesn't plead out of Jesus' command. He says, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. I'll do as you say. That is crazy trust, right? That's crazy obedience, even. I mean, if this is their first meeting, and afterwards it says they left everything and followed him, I mean, it seems to be at this initial point. That's crazy trust. That's crazy obedience. There are times in our faith where we don't have knowledge. All we have is trust. Where we don't have knowledge, perfect knowledge, that what we're being commanded is not going to be to our ruin. But we trust. We trust the one who's giving us the command. And here Peter does that. He trusts Jesus. And so... It's particularly difficult because of the previous night. So his response is wonderful faith. I'll do as you say. Then he had to turn and convince John and James to do so with him. Right? But there was something about the authority with which Jesus spoke that both caused Peter to call him master. Notice that right from the beginning, master, and caused him to obey the command. It's hard to obey Jesus after that long, fruitless night. It's hard to obey Jesus the morning after the hardest night, right? But that is the example we see in Peter. He hears and he goes. He hears, he goes. We are meant to learn the blessing of ready, unhesitating obedience to every plain command of Christ. The path of duty may sometimes be hard and disagreeable. The wisdom of the course we propose to follow may not be apparent to the world, but none of these things must move us. We're not to confer with flesh and blood. We are to go straight forward when Jesus says go. And do a thing boldly, unflinchingly, and decidedly when Jesus says do it. We're to walk by faith and not by sight and believe that what we see right now is right and reasonable, and we shall see hereafter. So acting, we shall never find in the long run that we are losers. So acting, we shall find sooner or later that we reap a great reward. That's J.C. Ryle. Acting, 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 moving forward, doing is what receives the blessing. And Peter was a man who was always prepared to act, right? Foolishly at times, foolishly in cutting off the ear of Malchus. But, but praise God, he was ready to act and he was not the man who fell in love with the status quo. The man who falls in love with the status quo is a man who will live without movement and without growth and without ever knowing the day of the great haul of fish. When did Peter um, catch the great haul of fish? After he obeyed Jesus' command. When will you see the desire of your heart granted, granted after you obey Jesus' commands? Jesus, as you know, said, if you love me, you will obey my command. So obedience to God is, I mean, obedience is love to God, nothing less. In our passage, then, we're being shown the love of Peter, though still new for Jesus, and the fruitfulness of that loving obedience to Jesus. 
Is this not what Jesus meant when he said, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things, food, drink, clothing, fish, will be added to you. Right? He's obeying this man he doesn't know, and he's going to be rewarded for it. I think the last, I'll speak for myself, I think the last few months have been a difficult time in our church. Um, There are people here who aren't here today because we've had to make certain decisions about our denomination. And we've had to make certain decisions as a session about where we might land. We've, and just having to focus on denominational things is depressing, right? Generally speaking, it's depressing. We want to be active as a body here, and we want to be um, growing in our discipleship and love for one another, and focusing on deni- denominational things seems so abstract, so um, dry and crunchy at times. I see some nodding heads out there. Larry's nodding really vigorously. Um, And so we've had to focus on denominational aspects of the faith and of the church, and it seemed like a long night without without a catch of fish. That's how it seemed to me. But I think there's blessing coming to us if we remove ourselves from this denomination and join Evangel Presbytery. I think that's going to be the day of the haul of fish. Um, It may not come immediately, but I think obedience to God, rather than fearing men, we fear God and make this movement based upon what we've said, will lead to this haul of fish. This, in my mind, is our putting out of the nets at the command of Christ. Right? We're throwing out the nets. After we've been... We've been fishing, and it seems like we haven't hauled. Now we're going we're gonna to throw out the nets, okay? And, uh, and at the command of Christ. Some have scoffed at our direction. Some have decided to leave us and not participate in throwing the nets into the water. Um, they say there will, there will continue to be no catch. And so we're going to um, cast our nets out elsewhere. And I say, let's cast the nets into the waters in which... We were catching no fish and see what God does. Let's throw our nets into the waters of Evangel Presbytery and see if some haul of fish comes from it. But that direction takes faith. It takes faith. It takes, it took faith just for us as a session to suggest it. The status quo is always easy to live in, right? The status quo does not ruffle any feathers. And pastors love status quo, right? Their salary depends on the status quo. But the status quo is not always faithfulness, right? Faithfulness sometimes means taking actions that you know are going to stir things up and be difficult. So let's throw our nets into the waters of Evangel Presbytery and see if some haul of fish comes in from it. But that direction will take faith. Leaving the status quo always takes faith. We'll have to have the faith of Peter to cast those nets. He wanted to go home, right? He wanted to rest. He didn't want to, he had just mended the nets and everything was set up back on the boat. He wanted to go home. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. And so I think that process of Peter switching his mindset to no, 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 let's, let's, let's obey and see what happens. I think that process starts next Sunday at our congregational meeting.
So approach it with faith. Approach it with joy. Right? Approach this moment with faith. So Peter obeys. He loves. And the fruitfulness of his love is overwhelming. They catch so many fish. Right? When they cast the nets over the bow of the boat, that the nets are breaking and the boats are beginning to sink after they get the fish onto the boats. Both boats are beginning to sink. This is a miracle. Right? This is a miracle. The drought is over. The, the rains have begun falling. And not just a few sprinkles. This is a downpour of Noahic proportions. Right, The blessings of God Almighty have come upon Peter and those who follow Jesus. The blessings. Think of their rejoicing. I mean, think of their eyes looking at those nets. Expecting that it would come up empty. You know, you've, have you ever seen that Deadliest Catch show? And they just dramatize it until that, you know, that, that, that cage of crabs is coming up over the side of the boat. And you can't see if there's a catch until it's about halfway down. But then they bring it up and sometimes it's empty. And the guys are like, well, you know, it's kind of what I expected. But when they bring it up half full and there's 60 crabs that are like this big in there, they rejoice. They go crazy, right? They're hooting, they're hollering, they're high-fiving, they're doing that. That's undoubtedly what... I mean, if the, if the high-five existed back in Jesus' days, they would be high-fiving, right? Most likely, they'd be proclaiming praise to God Almighty, right? The drought is over. The blessings of God have come. They're rejoicing. Their eyes are bulging out of their heads. Uh, think of the fact that they were so overwhelmed with the catch that it probably took a few minutes for them to figure out that their boat was so low in the water that it was going to go down. They, they were probably just bringing it in, bringing it in, bringing it in. And then, you know, ten minutes later, they oh, <laughs> water's right up to the edge of the boat there. We, we, what do we do now? And so the power of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is on display before their very eyes. The power of God. And this is very important. How does Peter respond to the outpouring of the power of God? He's afraid. He's scared. He's afraid to see such power. He knows he's in the presence of God. And that's why he's afraid. He falls at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. I'm a sinful man. Adam, after the fall, hid himself. Right? And this is sort of Peter having a sense of his sinfulness and and wanting to hide himself from the presence of God Almighty. Like the nation of Israel, when God spoke from the mountain, said, Now then, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us if we hear the voice of the Lord any longer than we will die. Right? Like Isaiah in the temple in the presence of God's glory, Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of glory. Like the tax collector who, who was unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Right? Like the Apostle John, who when he stood in the presence of the resurrected Christ in Revelation 1, fell at his feet like a dead man. This is how all should respond to the presence of God, isn't it? 
This is how all of us should respond to the presence of God. John Calvin said, Men are never duly touched and impressed with the conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. Right? Did you hear that? Men are never duly touched and impressed with the conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. Peter, when in the presence of Jesus, having seen his great power, is overwhelmed with his insignificance. But, but he's traumatized by his sinfulness. He knows he stands in the presence of holiness and therefore pronounces woe upon himself as Isaiah did. He tells Jesus in a sense that his presence is unbearable. Your presence is unbearable. Peter understood two things really quickly. Jesus is glorious and I, Peter, am not. Right? Jesus is holy and I am not. Jesus is God and I am not. There's a form of idolatry in the church today that rejects such truth. It diminishes God's glory and exalts man's sinlessness. Right? It says Jesus is holy and so am I. Right? Jesus is glorious and so am I. Jesus is God and so am I. Right? And that's blasphemy. Imagine this passage as written by many of today's church leaders. Instead of Peter falling before Jesus, confessing his sinfulness, he'd have started babbling about God being a God of love and acceptance and tolerance and, ex- and, and tolerance and tolerance and acceptance and love. Peter, were he following the doctrine of today's church, would have said something like, "Oh Jesus, God of love and acceptance, give me a hug." Give me a hug. Come closer. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of me, Jesus. Peter would have spoken like the, the, the bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of Upper South Carolina when um, he said the church could bless same-sex unions. He said it's part of our journey as faithful Christians to wrestle with questions about the intersection of the world and our faith. Peter would have said, Jesus, just relax. Let's wrestle with the intersection of the world and faith here. Peter would have said, all right, let's talk. You can be my God if I can be my own master. Peter would have said, lean in, Jesus, let me teach you. Peter would have said, Jesus, how about a date? That's what the church teaches today. And so, but what do we get here? We get a swift lesson on the doctrine of the sinfulness of mankind. That's what we get here. If the doctrine of man's sinfulness is dispensed with, set up a shelf, set upon a shelf, you know, as a relic of a bygone and desperately ignorant age, then faith is dead, right? The self becomes the standard of holiness, and the, the God to be worshipped becomes the self, right? Rather than a God who is holy outside of us, the, the self becomes the arbiter of truth and the one to be worshipped. But those who know God and the uniform example we have in Scripture are those who know that when we are in God's presence, the appropriate response, the only response that comes from understanding 
him as he has revealed himself in his word and in our hearts is Peter's response. Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. He, tell, he, he exhorts Jesus to get away. Why? Because we carry our sin into his presence. Every man must respond this way because every man is a sinner, having fallen short of the glory of God, and God is holy. You cannot be a Christian and have not had this experience. Right? You can't be a Christian and not be aware of your sins. Peter's experience is the, is the indispensable Christian, indispensable condition of, of a Christian, of the Christian faith. And to those who fear, Jesus says to them, fear not. <laughs> Look at verse 10. Jesus responds to Peter's words saying, do not fear. From now on, you'll be catching men. Do not fear. But to those who do not fear, Jesus says fear. Right? To those who fear, he says fear not. To those who don't fear, he says fear Declare this in the house of Jacob and proclaim it in Judah, saying, Now hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble in my presence? For I have placed the sand as a boundary for the sea, an eternal decree, so it cannot cross over it. Though the waves toss, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, yet they cannot cross over it. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and departed. They do not say in their hearts, let us now fear the Lord our God. Those who fear God and bow their knees in reverence before Jesus Christ will, like Peter here, do not fear, for I am with you. Don't fear, I'm with you. Those who will not fear will will one day be so afraid that they will be talking to rocks and mountains, right? Asking if they'd fall on them and hide them from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Those who fear the Lord will know his peace as Peter did. Those who fear God will have a mediator who whispers fear not into their ears and who whispers mine into the ears of the Almighty Father. Peter, Peter said, go away from me, Lord. And Jesus responds, I'm never going to leave you. I'm not going away. Those who f- don't fear the Lord will, will never hear Jesus say, don't fear. Their pride always says, approach me, Lord. And Jesus responds, I never knew you. Depart from me. And so the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, isn't it? And that's what we learn from Peter's example here. Fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. And you'll hear his blessings. You'll, you'll haul in that, those fish that make the boat sink just in the blessing that comes from acknowledging that God is above and beyond and holy. Holy. 